Now, ahead of that, I, there's a couple of things I wanted to, to show you that I thought uh, were kind of perfect little lead-in. And fascinating, this thing would come up. They have found, they uncovered just recently a 1,500-year-old amulet. And this is kind of a, an amulet is kind of like a good luck charm. It's a magical good luck charm, but it's 1,500 years old. The fragment formed part of an amulet, according to the Academics University of Manchester, oh, making it the earliest surviving document to use the Christian Eucharist, the sacrament, liturgy, as a protective charm. Wearing amulets as a protection against the dangers was an ancient Egyptian practice adopted by the Christians. This is an important and unexpected discovery, as it's one of the first recorded documents to use magic in the Christian context and the first charm ever to be found referred to the Eucharist, the Last Supper, as the manna of the Old Testament. In a state. The text of the amulet, and there it is, is an original combination of the biblical passages including Psalm 78, talking about the manna, and Matthew 26, talking about the sacrament. That apparently that they would wear these things either as, as a necklace or something on here and it would have those two liturgies in there tied together as a good luck charm to help them kind of in battle and kind of daily life. But the fascinating part for me was that 1,500 years ago they were seeing the sacrament and, and the manna of heaven for the children of Israel as one pre-typing the other. Wow. Kind of cool. Okay. Uh, and then also, uh, Renaissance says we're going to be talking uh, about uh, alabaster boxes and spikenard. Um, this, what oh, did not show up? Oh, no, I'm going to put it in here. It's Pope Francis's uh, coat of arms. And if you'll notice in the bottom right-hand corner, uh, there's the that is the fragrant flower. That's to be the the spikenard. That is the the odor from the alabaster box kind of thing. Okay, that's kind of fun. All right. Well, let's do this. Then. I want to I want to start. Let's turn to John 12. And I have to tell you, there is so much great stuff in here. Okay. Now, the, let me just mention here, I, I, I did notice something. Anybody's got your book out? How many chapters are there in the uh, in the book of John? Twenty one. Okay. What chapter are we are where we are here? Twelve. Okay. And we're in the last week of the Savior's life. In other words, half of John's writings all uh, go from about the last week of the Savior's life forward. That was the part that he really wanted to emphasize. Um, now. So then uh, six days before the Passover came to Bethany uh, where Lazarus, which had been dead, whom he raised from the, he raised from the dead. Now, I want you to notice, notice an interesting word here. 
Because we, we talked last time about, in, in May, we talked about Mary and Martha. And that, that endless conversation about are we Mary-like or Martha-like? We're being too hard on Martha because somebody, dang it, has to serve. And, you know, what's the deal? And how was Mary being lazy or was she being the greater part? And, you know, it's, it's one of those great discussions we get into. But I want you to notice an interesting word here. Uh, it's the second word in verse 2. So he's sitting down to dinner and... They. So apparently in this setting, this was a Mary and Martha. It gives you that idea that perhaps they had prepared this thing together. Okay. Uh, they made him a supper and Martha does what she always does and she serves. Okay. Uh, Martha served but... Uh, kind of the guest of honor here was Lazarus, was one of them that sat at the table with him. We're going to find out later that this was a big deal. It's one thing to talk about somebody who is blind and stuff like that. We got a guy that was dead, and he's running around, and it's a little hard if you're a Jew to go, this Jesus is not that big a deal, but explain Lazarus. That makes no sense, right? It's a little bit like saying Joseph Smith wasn't nothing. Okay, great, then explain the Book of Mormon. You know, you have a hard time getting around that. They had a hard time getting around Lazarus to the point that the, the, the question was among the Jews, do we kill Jesus or do we kill Lazarus? Which one do we bump off to slow this thing down? Okay. Now, there they made him a supper. Martha served, but Lazarus was one of them that sat at the table with him. Um, now, in, in kind of setting this, this up... Um, I found it fascinating, and I actually have the, the reference there. It's Psalm 23. Think about what you know about Psalm 23. And I think Psalm 23 has a little bit, one of the, the and it's always been seen as a messianic chapter. It's referring to the Savior. But I wonder if this had a little bit of fulfillment in this sacred moment. This is a very terrific moment. In, our, in Christian history and in the life of the Savior. Think about the, the Savior's going to say, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we're a week out from his death. Okay? Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Then he's going to say, Thou doest what? Preparest a table. In the presence of mine enemies. Was he surrounded by enemies here? Yeah. Oh, sure. They were plotting against him. They were anxious to kill him. They were wondering how they were going to do it. And in the middle of all of that tumult and, and threats, he goes to Bethany and he sits with th this family that he loves so much. And in the middle of all of this, thou preparest a table. Thou servest me as supper. Thou feedest me lovingly. In the midst of mine enemy. And then what's the next verse? Thou anointest my head with oil. How can this not at least have some partial fulfillment in this moment? Now. It's fascinating if you look to it, uh, and I've got I've put it in between verses two and three. Look at Mark, talking about this moment, specifically talking about Mary. 
Verily I say unto you, whithersoever this gospel shall be preached throughout the whole world, this also that she hath done shall be spoken of for a memorial of her. When we start talking about the great events of that first uh, generation of Christendom, and he says, wherever you're going to go to preach, this moment, this act, by this woman will be seen as one of those great moments in our history. And it should be remembered by everybody. Let's look at what she did. Verse 3. Then took Mary a pound of ointment of spikenard. Anybody know what spikenard is? Or sometimes known as nard. Yeah, no. The nard didn't help much, did it? <laughs> oh, you know nard. Um, a bottle of spikenard was actually uh, kind of a perfume. It was an oil substance. It was an extract of flowers. We don't know which ones exactly. We think lavender is, was a popular one, spikenard. Anyway, but it's a pound of spikenard, which Judas Iscariot is going to uh, value at how much? 300. 300 pence. Okay, 300 pence to catch the idea that that is a year's wages. That's a year's wages. So we're probably talking somewhere in modern time, somewhere on the order of maybe $50,000, $60,000. Just an astronomical sum. She's going to bring this pound of spikenard, very costly, and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the odor of the ointment. Now, let, let, me, let me stop for a second because I need you to... Sometimes we read these things and I don't think we necessarily catch the import. And I think this is one of those moments that we've got to try and visualize what it is that's actually going on. Who's doing the writing here? John. Okay. Um, John is going to, to describe this and he's going to say uh, and wiped his feet with her hair and the house was filled with the odor of the ointment. Was John actually present? Yeah. Yeah, unlike some of the other ones that would write, John would have been present for this. So this is a first, first-hand uh, writing. Okay. Now, so picture John, and, and I and I guess as I've, I've thought this through, I mean, I picture all of the people coming and going, and we don't know who all was there. There's always a large entourage, but there they are, and there's this dinner going on, and there are people come to see Lazarus, and there's kind of a lot, a lot of talking and and uh, visiting and people come and go and remember the houses there were kind of open people could come and go and all that so there's like this big it's like Thanksgiving you know when everybody's kind of coming and going you got a large family okay then in the middle of that here comes Mary and for her to then come in and kneel at his feet and she's going to bring an alabaster box she's going to open the alabaster box She's going to reach in. She's going to grab a vial of spikenard. And she's going to break it. It's sealed. She's going to break it. And then she's going to anoint his head. She's going to anoint his feet. Um, Now, that in and of itself. I want you to almost... Here's the way my mind goes with this. 
I picture this noise, this tumult going on, and then I picture everything suddenly getting really still. As everybody turns to look at what she, oh, what she got in there? She opened, oh, spike it. Oh my gosh, it's really expensive spike in her. And then she's going to anoint his head, and then she's going to anoint, she's going to get down on her knees, she's going to anoint his feet. And then, because she's a woman, most likely her hair is covered, right? She's going to remove her covering, and she's going to bend down and wipe his feet with her hair. That moment of intimacy and the sacred, sacred moment, I think would have just brought everything to a halt in there. Watching this dear woman doing what she's doing. And for John writing about it years later and paired with that memory of that odor, that sweet odor of the spikenard, remembering that moment, it's like perfume where you smell something that takes you right back. If you're going to go to the grocery store, what the first thing you got to pass to get when you walk through a grocery store? The bakery. Why? It makes you hungry and... You, you, why do you spend more? It makes you hungry. It makes you hungry, but there's also a sense that the, you're having the memory of freshly baked bread and it takes you back to a very good time, maybe when you were younger and you smelled bread baking. Okay, it's one of the reasons why they do that. So you went in to spend a little bit, you walk by the bakery, oh, I'm feeling good, I'll buy more. Well, I think with John, this is one of those moments when he writes about the memory and he talks about the odor, and that is paired with watching this act and still kind of being in awe of what he watched. I was reading how it said that this was something that even kings rarely yeah, even kings were good this. And I thought how appropriate that Mary recognized that yeah. he was king. And that he was about to die. I mean, remember the rest of the disciples are kind of living in some denial. You know, can we go with you and stuff like that? She goes, this is my king and he's about to die. And she, this expression of hers, I can't imagine anything that she would possess that would be of greater value monetarily than a pound of spikenard. And yet she's going to bless his body for burial. And she's going, but she's going to do it with a very intimate act to wash his feet with her hair. Well, I was thinking they must have been a wealthy family for her to have that. Somehow she got a hold of that. Yeah, for them to have a home in Bethany up there, yeah. They, they, they had a little bit of money, but they wanted, again, probably not another item in the entire home that would have been as value. Think about how many things you own that are worth $50,000. Okay, so her to be able to do this. So now, so so my my question would be: if you look at this incredibly sweet, tender, intimate, sacred moment, and she brought it with an alabaster box. Now, I think I think kind of what we should be looking at this then is saying: okay, if I if I were going to meet with the Savior. And I were going to approach him with an alabaster box, my own alabaster box. If I open up my alabaster box, what's in it? What is the most valuable, tender thing I could present to the Savior shortly before his death that would be the most expensive, 
emotionally or spiritually thing that I own? What would you think? My heart. Why? It's all he wants from us. It's all he truly can give. Yeah. He, that he really is wanting our heart. Okay? What else do you think might be in that, in your alabaster box? Yeah, Cecily. Our talents, those things maybe that we've honed and worked with and stuff. Like, and we see if you think about it, almost what's in that alabaster box. If we were to say, "What do I value most about me? What is my best thing? What is my best thing?" That's what I would put in the box. I think it might be a talent. I think it might be our heart. What else? Yeah, our what? Neil Maxwell would say our will, our ability to say, um, I talked to a uh, very sweet sister uh, this last week in my office, and we, we had this interesting conversation. She's not sure that her marriage is going to make it. Uh, she's in, in a lot of pain, and she's praying for her husband's heart to change. And I said, what would happen if you prayed that the Lord's will be done? And she says, that's almost like giving the Lord's permission for him to walk away I want what I want for all the right reasons for my kids sake for my sake for all the right reasons but I'm a little afraid to turn it over to the Lord because I'm afraid it may turn out differently than what I really 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 want but I have to trust his will and I'm saying then do you trust that what he will do for you will be the best thing and she had to say well I'm not sure I think our will, and it's bound up in our heart. What is it that we really desire? Yeah. Is it alabaster? Is that a certain stone? What is that? Yeah. What's alabaster? She had the pictures of us in alabaster, but yeah, it's 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 kind of an ivory box kind of thing generally, white. Yeah. I think it's a white stone, an alabaster marble. I think it's been shaved very thin. Translucent. And it's kind of translucent. Yeah. Almost think about it as uh, like abalone shell. It would be that, that kind of consistency. So it's a, it's, a, it's a fancy box. And by the way, this is, she's not the first woman that showed up with the alabaster box, is she? There was another sinful woman that stood behind him in tears and she, and she produced an alabaster box as well. She didn't have spike in her, but she just wet his feet with her tears and again with her hair. Okay? So she gave her best. She gave her best. She gave the only thing that she had, which was her tears and her, and her hair. Okay? Well, I just think, again, I think our question needs to be, if, if I were going to ask you, what is your best thing? We just said, uh, our ward on Friday night, we did a uh, no talent night. And it's always fascinating to me what people choose for their no talents. You know, we're just going to come forward. Uh, a few years ago we did it. It was won by a kid with a, on a pogo stick. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, but we bring our best. And so when we come to this task of trying to understand this Savior and what it is that He needs from us, now we're going to bring our alabaster box. And so... I would hope that one of the things that we think about today is, what's in my box? What is my best thing? Now, a scary thing for me often with something like this is that 
if you've got somebody that's struggling, you know, some of the stuff that I see on a regular basis, so I'm talking about kind of low self-esteem and depression and anxiety and struggles, and I were to ask, what's in your box? Sound like the credit card company, doesn't it? What's in your box? How many people in the church would say there isn't much there? There just isn't much there. I don't think I have very much to present. And don't we have this conversation at Christmas every year? You know, we talk about the gift of the Magi and what gifts can I bring, you know. And, and they brought gold, frankincense, and myrrh. What would I bring to the Savior? What's in my box? And sometimes I think we look at ourselves and we say, I got nothing. I got very little. I don't have much to offer. I have rocks. To quote the brother of Jared. I got rocks. You create great boats. I got rocks. If you'll touch them, you can make them into something, but at the moment, I got rocks. But isn't that kind of the key? We open up our alabaster box and we may not think there's much in that to present to this Savior at that moment. But, but let me ask you this. Let's take this one step farther though. This is Mary in her house. She's, she's at his feet. She's cleaning the dust and dirt from his feet. And, and that could be pretty filthy stuff if you're walking down a normal street in ancient Jerusalem. Okay? Couldn't she have used her dress to wipe his feet? Couldn't she have had a cloth to wash his feet? Why her hair? It is a very private thing. And again, she's going to have to uncover it. And she could have used a, she could have used her dress. She's right there. She could have used a cloth. But she's going to use what? Herself. The, the most intimate thing that she has. And I think sometimes when we look at our alabaster box, it is us. What do we have personally that nobody else can supply? Yeah. Yes. And she could have held on to that because the, either he's not going to accept it or he's not going to want it or I'm going to hold on to it for another thing I'm going to... But you're right, she expended the very thing that she had. Okay? Alright, now, I want you to... Now we get this, and, and we see this in the Scriptures a lot. There is this incredible contrast. Again, just picture this moment. Picture what John is looking like. The memories of this, uh, Mark's response to this is that the, the Savior was going to say, wherever we go in the world, everybody's going to remember this great act. Okay? Now, look at the next verse. We're going to go right from that moment to who? Judas. Judas. Then saith one of the disciples, verse 4, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, which should betray him? And his... And his question is, why was not this ointment sold for 300 pence and given to the poor? Now, John, looking in down through the years of history, says, this he said, why? He didn't care about the poor. In fact, I'll take it farther, and actually, he was a thief. This man that walked with us for years was a thief. 
probably embezzling money, and he had the bag. Now, let, let's stop for a sec. If you are if you're an artisan of any type, back in this time of Jerusalem, how do you how do you uh, advertise your wear? How do you advertise your services? Didn't have billboards. Don't. What they would do is they would hang the implements of their trade on the outside of their clothing. If you're a tailor, you might walk around with like some scissors or, or something like that. Okay. If you're if you're a stone cutter, you might walk around with a chisel or something, that, so that everybody's going to see you is going to go. Oh, that's right. He's a he's a stonemason. He's a tailor. He's a and and Judas has the bag. He's the money guy. So more likely, you know, that that money bag would have been kind of hanging out there. Okay. Now. So is that supposed to be? That's not good, is it? So was that bag advertising that he was a thief? That bag was advertising that he had the money. He's the, he's the CFO. He's the money guy. He's the treasurer. He's the treasurer of the group. Okay? Now, we're going to talk a lot more about Judas in just a second. But I want you to picture... So, so, so what is it that, that he has in the bag? Money. Now, fascinating to me that we have this beautiful, seminal, sacred moment between Mary and the Savior and John, everybody who's looked at this in the past just revels in what that moment was like. What was it like for Judas? It was a waste. We should be, what a waste. And I'm thinking that when, as hearts become hardened and they are in, in touch with sacred moments... They miss it. Um, I was reading online. I'm, I'm, because I have a number of uh, wonderful uh, people whose spouses are struggling with the church uh, and concepts and issues there, um, I was invited onto a Facebook, a kind of a closed Facebook page of uh, people whose spouses are in the process of leaving the church. And... Uh, I had to be invited in uh, to, for confidentiality because in a lot of cases these spouses have not yet announced to their family, to the wards, anybody that they've left the church. They now no longer believe. And just as I was getting ready last night, I, I had a, a message come up from one of the sweet sisters in this group and she said, uh, I came home uh, in between meetings at church uh, to change my, my baby's diapers. To, I come home to find my my husband smoking pot in our house. And she says, it, that, I told him that was the last straw and I'm out of there. So I imagine that today that marriage is ending. Uh, but she's tried to be compassionate and caring and forgiving and keep the marriage and the family together and let's find a way to deal with your things you're doing in your life and I'll try and find a way to keep feeding the kids the gospel and not have an impact and stuff like that. And then she gets to that point and she goes, okay, that's it. There, there is a, there's a line in the sand, you just crossed it. But now she's in an awful lot of pain. Well, I think for someone like that, there was a time that this guy, returned missionary, okay? 
who has now kind of gone to that part where the, the heart goes cold. And even in being in the presence of something like that, they don't see it for what it is. Well, that's, that's hard. That's tough. Now, so, so here's, here's the, the question. So we just talked about what's in your alabaster box. Okay? Now, is it possible that sometimes we can carry around a bag of something that is going to prevent us from being able to spiritually see what's right in front of us? Can people sit in the temple and have two different, vastly different experiences? One reveling in the spirit and the experiences and the other being so put off by the symbolism and not understanding or going in with a cold heart or whatever. So, so I just asked you what was in your box. Now let me ask, what could be in your bag that would prevent you from either giving the stuff in the box or recognizing the moment and, and smelling the sweet odor and being touched by it? What could be in our bag? Pride. Sometimes we carry that pride around. Sometimes we're on our outside, right? One of the things I like about... Uh, I'm always interested. When we, go to, when we go to Utah for Education Week, it's always that... And I always see it like in the airports and stuff like that. I, I'm always amazed by like Mormon youth that have grown up in the church and they really want people to know I'm not really Mormon anymore. Or I really want to mess with my parents that are like, my dad's like state president. I need him to know I'm not listening and I don't care about him and his dumb church. So what are they going to do? What do they wear on their outside? Yeah, it could be black. I'll do like the black thing. We'll go all emo. Tattoos, piercing. Piercing, tattoos and everything. I need, you to, I need to prove to everybody I'm not Mormon. Can you see I'm not Mormon? You see, I don't have a missionary haircut. I have tattoos. You want to see it? I will have a beer shirt. I need you to know I'm not Mormon. <laughs> have you gotten the point yet? I'm not following the Mormon thing. Spiky hair. I got to have spiky hair because I know that it mom, drives my mom nuts. And they're probably not going to have me bless the sacrament. <laughs> I'm not Mormon. Can you tell? Okay. So sometimes we carry these things on the outside. But what might somebody have in their bag that would prevent them from the bug? Fear of change. We might, you think there might be fear in the bag mm-hmm. of what life might be like. So I'm afraid to make a, a change. So sometimes we carry fear in the bag. Yeah? You give up your will in your alabaster box. What's going to happen on the other side of that? And what's in the bag prevents me from giving what's in the box? Sometimes it's just trauma and our past, sometimes past experiences can be carried in our bag that prevent us from seeing what's right in front of us. That's true. Yeah. Ignorance. Lack of knowledge. And sometimes, you know, it's funny how often that, that ignorance is kind of, I don't want to know. You know, la, 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 la. <laughs> Somebody's trying to, um, anybody teach in seminary? You got kids in seminary. Are you really? Good for you. <laughs> Do, any experience yet with, with kids are going to early morning seminary they're a little resentful to be there so they're going to make sure that you know that they don't want to really learn stuff and they're going just because mom told them that they had to go <laughs> I'm here but I'm not happy about it and you can't teach me anything 
Okay? Ah, la, 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 la. And I think sometimes that ignorance is self-imposed. Yeah. Yeah. I was just reading a few weeks ago in the Book of Mormon where Amulek introduces himself. And uh, he says, you know, you know me, I, I'm a successful businessman. Yeah. I have many family and friends. And uh, basically I haven't been active in the church. But he says, I knew, but I would not know. It's a great line from Amulek. Yeah, she talked about that, that line with Amulek when he's when he the, Alma speaks to the crowd, the crowd goes, Yeah, but who are you? You're one guy. Then Amulek stands up and he goes, I'm of no small reputation, you know who I am and everything, and you know I got a successful business and my family's all here and everything, uh, which by the way they'll then kill uh, shortly after that. Uh, and then but then he says, I knew but I would not know. La 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 la, I just don't want to let that in. At all. Sometimes that bag is ignorance. You're right. But my experience having raised six teenagers is that you keep talking anyway. Yes. They really are. Eventually, it, it's like it's like it's going to suck in. Sometimes as parents, there's an old talk by or an old talk, an old routine by uh, um, Bill Cosby, and he talked about getting a brand new sports car. And he's and he's driving down the sport, and he recognizes he's out of gas, and he pulls into a gas station to fill it up, and he climbs all over the car and can't figure out where the gas goes in. Somewhere they've hidden the place where you put the gas in. And he stares at it for a long time, and he says, so then I just got the gas pump, and I poured gas all over it. I, I, I hoped it would suck in somewhere. <laughs> so, sometimes as parents, we do that. You're not listening, but I'm going to... I'm going to keep pouring it in. I'm hoping that something seeps in on you at some point. <laughs> uh, yes, uh, young women's president. Yes. What about resentment? Like, I, I think there are a lot of people that, well, all these horrible things are happening to me, and I try to be strong in the gospel, and I do what I'm supposed to do, but these, these wrong things are happening to me. Anyway, forget it. I'm done. I expected that God wouldn't let these things happen to me, so I'm living kind of a resentment. We'll carry that in our bag. I think so. Uh, oh, wait a minute. I hadn't even thought of that one. How many of us have Martha in our bag? <laughs> That's perfect. <laughs> she says, some of us have Martha in our bag. <laughs> I'm trying to be Mary, but it drives me nuts that I have to go to church with Martha. <laughs> and, I, and I'm trying to be loving, but I turn around everywhere I look, there's Martha. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I got to remember that one. That, that's way too good. Okay, so I, I, I just think the point on this, if we'll take a look at this, is the idea that says here we have this wonderful spiritual moment, and it can happen in church, it can happen in the temple, it can happen in families, and and we might be in a merry place where where we have our alabaster box and we're ready to give our best, or it's possible that we might be in a uh, Judas Iscariot place and we have something in our bag that prevents us from experiencing and seeing it for what it is. And I think, and I think we all kind of go back and forth. Sometimes I think grudges and, and things are one of those things that we carry in our bag a lot. Okay? Alright. Gosh, we have 40 minutes. Alright. Um...
Okay, now, to head into this next part then, so uh, we set the table. This is a few days before, and now we're going to roll right down to the moment when the Savior's going to send uh, the disciples out to go find a place where we can celebrate Passover. Remember, Passover celebrations last about a week. Uh, oftentimes they'll do them at home, but it's but try as, if it's possible, get to Jerusalem for Passover. So they're going to have to find at the last moment a place to hold Passover for the, for the disciples. Now, to set this up, though, I want, I want to have you picture that there are actually three suppers that I think we need to pay attention to, uh, this being the first. That in, in our history of the world, these are suppers, these are celebrations uh, that are critical. Um, I want to start off, as we talk about this Last Supper, there are a number of elements that go into this Last Supper. And this is the Passover Seder. And this happens when? We know time of year? Spring. Spring. Like first week of April. Okay. This is, remember from the Old Testament, the Lord says, this is where you start your counting from. This is really like New Year's Day kind of. You're, you're at, from the Passover going forward, this is where your calendar year begins. Okay? Now, so we're going to have this Passover Seder. Uh, the sacrifice of the Paschal Lamb. You have to have that unblemished lamb is going to be part of that. It's sometimes called killing the Passover. Um, you're going to add to that bitter herbs. And then you've got the three matzah of the unleavened bread. It's sometimes in the scriptures referred to as the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, Passover. Okay. We talked last time, we talked about the Old Testament. Why unleavened bread? What's wrong with yeast? Yeah, well, and right. And dying. It's dying. Okay. So you're gonna, but it's also kind of removing some of the impurities out there. Okay. All right, now... Now, let, so, so that, is, that is the Passover. Now, interesting, when we look at uh, DNC 27, we're going to be told about another supper that kind of lines up. Um, remember, they were, they were in the process, they were getting ready to have the sacrament, and Joseph goes out to get um, <laughs> wine for the sacrament, and he's met by an angel. And the angel says, The commandment I give it unto you, that you do not purchase wine, neither strong drink, of your enemies. For the hour cometh that I will drink of the fruit of the vine with you on the earth, and with Moroni, whom I have sent to reveal the Book of Mormon. There is a coming Passover. There is a coming supper. And we sometimes call this the supper of the... This is the wedding feast, right? Supper of the bridegroom. Where is this going to be? Adam on Diamond. This is part of the things that happen at the last part of the second coming is this great uh, wedding feast, the Feast of the Bridegroom. And there's going to be a lot that happens at this Feast of the Bridegroom. And he's, and he's starting to teach Joseph about this. <coughs> he then goes down this list, the, the invitee list of who all is going to be at the Feast of uh, there, and there's a long list, Peter, James, and John, and Elijah, and Moses, and Abraham. They're all coming to this great, this, this is great. This is an awesome feast. 
going to say, and also with all those whom the Father hath given me out of the world. Meaning, who gets to be at the feast? We do. I sometimes pictured how that would work. I mean, haven't, haven't we done a... Um, how many of you went to the uh, Nauvoo Temple dedication? How many of you went to the Nauvoo Temple dedication but were never in Nauvoo oh. during the dedication? Yeah. <laughs> Where were you? Right here. For those of us in the Plano State, this was the temple during the Nauvoo Temple dedication right here. And we, you had to be able to get a recommend. You got to come in. And for, a, and for a few hours, this room was part of the temple. Okay. You think maybe the, the, the wedding feast, the great wedding feast of our Christ at the second coming might be a similar thing? We might be part of it. And, and we might have our own buffet going on here, okay? We got jello and we got, you know, funeral potatoes. <laughs> we won't need and funeral potatoes. Anymore. That's right. We won't need funeral potatoes. There's no way that they'll be living potatoes. Living. Father hath given me out of the world, and then he's going to say, "Therefore, whoop, therefore, lift up your armor." So he's talking about a future supper, and it's going to tie into this last supper because when we start talking about the supper of the Lamb, and it's going to happen prior to the second coming. Okay. What about the sacrifice of the Paschal Lamb? This is a shedding of blood thing. Is that part of the Supper of the Lamb? Yeah. Yes. The sons of Levi will offer their offering. And Joseph said that will be a sacrifice of blood. Does that mean it's returning to the earth? No, we're done with those days. But that seems to be a restoration at least at this moment as part of this feast that it will that will then for a short period of time this will be part of what the sons of Levi will offer for their sacrifice. Okay. Okay, at the at the Last Supper there was bitter herbs. Remember what the what the bitter herbs suggested? <coughs> Along with salt water? Cecily, what is that what is that uh, what, I, I've had Passover at uh, Cecily's house before. What what is the salt and the bitter herbs. The bitterness and the sorrow of being kicked out of, or of slavery. Of slavery. In other words, having to make bricks without straw and all that and, and everything that they went through. So you're right. They're sacrificing. So it's really kind of the, the salt water is the tears and it's the bitterness of where we are because we're in bondage. Okay? Now, think there's a think there's a correlation there for the Supper of the Lamb? Sure. Because there's an arrow there and you figured there would be, right? <laughs> well, of course. And we're going to celebrate for at least a thousand years the binding of Satan. He's going to now be held. Won't that be awesome? Yes. Think about all your kids that struggle with pornography and stuff like that. Wouldn't it be nice to just like hang Satan up on a hook somewhere and like, okay, you can't touch him for a thousand years. they got time to heal. 
makes me think of Ding Dong, the witch is dead. I don't know why it's <laughs> Ding Dong, the wicked witch is dead. Yeah, and that's the Wizard of Oz, you know, the yeah. witch dies, and they're free. and they're all celebrating, and they're free. I don't know, I just I think it. I think it fits. <laughs> is he literally bound? Yeah, where he can't. I don't. I don't know if there's like if he's in a straight jacket somewhere, or kind of in a celestial room or something. It's not because we're righteous, but it's because he's bound. In some way, he'll be prevented from being able to tempt us. Actually, in, somewhere in the scriptures it says he won't be able to have power over right. us. So I thought, and we don't know exactly how this binding occurs. I thought it had to do with people's righteousness. I think that's part of it, but it isn't interesting that there will be a lot of. Um, not wicked people, but not there'll be a lot of churches on the earth, especially at the beginning. Not everybody's going to be members. And they still are going to have some susceptibility to him at some level, but he's going to be bound. Okay? And in what way, way we don't Okay, free matzah. This is the unleavened bread. And this really is the wedding feast. We're actually going to eat and we're going to get to partake of, of this great meal. All right, so that is supper number one, last supper. Supper number three, the supper of the Lamb. Anybody guess what the third supper is? Hey, wait a minute. The first supper is... Um, the last supper. Okay, and then the second... And remember, that last supper is the kind of the Passover thing, and it's moving <laughs> to the sacrament. We're kind of at that, it's that moment where he's fulfilling the, the law. But that's, the, that's one supper. The supper of the, of the Lamb at the last, of the second coming, that's the third one. Where would be the second supper? Yeah, exactly. It's the sacrament. With all the same elements. Okay? It's a connection to the last supper. It's also a preparation for the supper to come. And where the Passover... Seder was at the last days of the Savior's life. The Supper of the Lamb was prior to the Second Coming. When's the sacrament? Each Sunday. We get, to, we get to be part of this precursor to what's coming and a reminder of what's past. And we do it every week. So when is the... So there was a sacrifice of the Lamb. The sons of Levi are going to offer a sacrifice. What's the sacrifice of the sacrament? Broken heart, contrite spirit, right? As Neil Maxwell said, it's sacrificing the animal within. You have to sacrifice that beast inside of us. How about the bitter herbs? We have to remember with tears our own bondage. That sin binds us during the week. And then this is where we get a chance to come partake of a, the supper and be cleansed. Our Gethsemane. We have our own Gethsemane in a way, if you will. We're, we're kind of go through this and we're handing it. That's why whenever in the Doctrine and Covenants it's always talked about offering the sacrament. The sacrament is an offering. It's, it's what we're giving to Him. What we're giving to Him is our sin. In a sense, brothers and sisters, we're opening our alabaster box at this supper. And we take our, our will, we take our sins, and we, and we offer that to Him.
And then obviously the, the broken bread then becomes the, the thing that we're eating. <coughs> sort of makes sense? Okay. So that said, now we come to John 13. And now that we've kind of set the table a little bit, uh-huh, it, it suffers at the... Okay. Here comes John's great lesson. Um, when we talk about John, by the way, how do we usually refer to him? We talk about doubting Thomas, and that is really an unfair appellation because he was so much better than that. John the Beloved. John the Beloved. Or the apostle that, that Jesus loved. Yeah, this, this is kind of a loving guy. And, and he's going to really kind of drive that home here. Turn to John 13. Now I want you to see some things about this. It's kind of fascinating. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour was coming, he should depart out of this world. And now he's going to give you a... That he's going to give you two bookend statements in John 13. One's going to come in his first verse, and then the other's going to come like in verse 23. Okay, On the front end, we're going to get, having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. Now, I would think for John, because of his experiences, he might have said, uh, having loved his own including John, which were in the world, and he loved them, including John, unto the end. Beautiful statement. Then he's going to tell us what he means by that. But I want you to picture verse 1, and then down here, in 34, is the other bookend. So he loved them unto the end, and then at 34, the end of this whole sermon here is going to be this one on the end, and it's going to be a new commandment I give unto you that you love one another. Now, before we talk about this, I want you to put something in the back of your head, and I'm going to ask you in just a couple of minutes, why is this a new commandment? seems like he gave it at Mount Sinai. Why would this be a new commandment? Hold on to it. No answers yet. Just think, why is this a new commandment? Okay, now. All right. Now, here's the next thing I need you to notice about this chapter. It's kind of fascinating. So he loved them until the end. Now, look at verses 2, 3, and 4. It's one sentence. And it's going to tell you everything you need to know about what's about to occur in here. Okay? Uh, and supper being ended, comma, the devil having now put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. And then what's at the end of that? Semicolon. So the sentence isn't done yet. Okay. Then he's going to go, uh, and Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand, that he was come from God, and went to God, and then there's a semicolon. He rises from supper, layeth aside his garments, took a towel, and girded himself. Okay, that's one phrase. Now, he's, about, he's going to tell you, having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. Okay, now here comes this. The supper being ended, 
He rises from supper. Supper isn't ended. They're still in the middle of this. That's a misnomer. This is still going. This is not at the end of the supper. This is right in the middle. Okay. So, supper continuing. He rises from supper, lays aside his garment. And what is in between that? Judas. Judas. Between verse 1 and verse 34, the book ends... We're going to hear about Judas in a third of the verses. He's going to fill a third of these. So if we were going to say, having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them unto the end, including Judas. Because he's about to watch the feet of the apostles, including Judas. And we're supposed to love one another. And if anybody had a right to have something in his bag for the Savior, it probably could have been Judas, right? When uh, this this summer, um, Cindy and I had a chance to go to uh, uh, Boston. Took a weekend up there. And one of the places that we went to was uh, Lexington and Concord to battle the Battle Green, the Battle Road, uh, the the Rude Bridge, the Span, the spring, you know, all of this stuff. These beautiful moments of the first part of the Revolutionary War that started creating a country where the gospel could be restored to. Okay, so that set me on reading. I read about three or four books on the Revolutionary War during the summer. You know, in the middle of getting ready for Ed Week, which was silly. But anyway, one of those things that came out of that, I was fascinated by a, by a singular story, and that was that uh, George Washington uh, was obsessed with uh, trying, to, trying to retake New York after he had lost it. He saw New York as kind of the, the cornerstone of, main, of, of being able to win independence. And the cornerstone to New York he saw as West Point the fort at West Point. And he felt like we have to maintain the fort at West Point so we can maintain New York. If we can maintain New York, we can beat the British. And he's probably right. So what he did is he took his his most uh, trusted general who had been wounded in battle to actually then and charged him with the defense and the protection of the keystone of everything, West Point. And that trusted general was Benedict Arnold. Okay? And somewhere in this process of the war, uh, Benedict Arnold had his own bag. We're not quite sure what it is that was in that, but he, he felt like he hadn't got the raises and the accolation that he deserved. Um, and the British were offering a lot of money. And so he, Benedict Arnold makes this pact with the British that uh, he, will, he will set up so that they can come in, that ha- General Howe can come in and take over West Point and in the process capture George Washington. So there's a plot in play. Now, if, they, if, if that happens, it is kind of game over. If George Washington doesn't survive this plot, if he's captured, we, we probably don't win our independence. Now, they sent a general, General uh, Andre, up there with the... With, Listing all of this, the, the, a couple of uh, uh, flunky uh, 
Revolutionary War soldiers capture Andre, they, and they see that he's carrying something. They take him to George Washington. Washington opens it up, and that's when he sees and reads the size of the betrayal of Benedict Arnold. Uh, and his response is, first of all, he's just crestfallen and, and beside himself, and then he gives a couple of orders. One is that uh, they're to do everything possible now to recapture Benedict Arnold, because Benedict Arnold finds out. He, he runs. He gets, gets over to the British forces. Uh, the, the response is, if you capture Benedict Arnold, keep him alive. They actually executed Andre. We're going to execute Benedict Arnold, but it, need, it needs to be in a public setting. And then George Washington actually sends a couple of guys in undercover to defect to the British Army so they can get close to Benedict Arnold so they can capture him and, and bring him to Washington. Okay? It hurt that much. And actually Benedict Arnold will then lead an armed force in, in Virginia against Revolutionary War soldiers. Okay? So I, I, I see this betrayal that happens to George Washington and how he responds to that. Look at the way that the Savior handles his Benedict Arnold. Remember, John sees him as a thief. And he's the one that holds the bag and he was stealing from us. Okay? Okay. Um, The Savior rises from supper, he layeth aside his garments, took a towel, and girded himself after he had poured water into a basin. He began to wash the disciples' feet and wiped them with a towel wherein he was girded. Okay? Now, this is fascinating to me. Whose actions is he copying? Mary's. I don't. There's a part of me that would love to know more about the fact that uh, did Mary know what he was about to do, or is he seeing that intimate act so much that that's something that he was going to bring forth? I don't know. The act of washing of feet, though, was one that if you look at Abraham entertaining the the angels, he washes their feet. I mean, there is a tradition of when strangers come into your midst, one of the things that you do for them is that you wash their feet. And who usually washes the feet? Usually a servant. Now if their head is all dry from being in the sun, you may anoint them with some olive oil or something like that to help them with that process. But So here's the Savior and he's going to, he's going to be the one to, uh, to wash his feet. Now, again, thinking about Mary's act. Think about the Savior's act here. Oh my for him to literally, for, for the Savior to wash his feet, where did he need to be? Down low. Down low. We talk about, you know, the, the angel talking to Nephi. Knowest thou the condescension of God? Do you know how far God fell? This is the Jehovah of the Old Testament at the feet of his disciples watching, washing off the dirt and the gunk off of their feet. That is beyond comprehension. And Peter's response to that from the Joseph Smith translation is, Thou needest not to wash my feet. <laughs> How would you feel if, if, if you meet Jesus and he's going to wash your feet? Would you be a little uncomfortable? 
Oh my. And so you can picture Peter going, where else would we go? Thou art the Christ, thou art the Messiah, and you're washing my feet. I, you know, so he, his response is understandable. Uh, thou shalt never wash my feet. And Jesus said, if I wash thee not, thou hast no part with me. Why? Why did Peter's feet have to be washed? It's symbolic of repentance, yeah. Isn't that part of becoming an apostle? Why is it part of becoming an apostle? Because I've heard that it is. <laughs> just because it is? No, that I don't. I don't know, but it just seems that it's a very humbling experience to to accept that that service from the Savior. It's yeah. It's, it's hard. To, I mean, someone that's the God of the earth is wanting to wash your feet. Yeah. And, in, and by the way, and in the next 24 hours, not only will he wash Peter's feet, he was also wash his sins in the Garden of Gethsemane. So this is, kind of, this is very much symbolic of that. If you're going to be my disciple, you must be cleansed, right? Yeah, and he's descended below, and so he's going to demonstrate something. Look at what happened. Let's go back to Joseph Smith, and this is the school of the prophets. Joseph is having to take a group of uh, uh, men in the 18th century and be able to somehow turn them into disciples, turn them into apostles, and prepare them for the ordinances of the temple. This is prior, the school of the prophets is just prior to the curtain temple. How do I get these rough stones ready for the temple experience? Well, we'll have the school of the prophets. We're going to teach them. We're going to train them. And they must be cleansed. They must be clean. 138, section 88. And ye shall not receive any among you into this school say he is clean from the blood of this generation that we're carrying a lot of wickedness and you must be separated to be separated is to be made sacred is to sanctify you and that separates you out from the world you must be made clean from the blood of this generation and he shall be received by the ordinance of the washing of feet so this, this act by the Savior, on one side it is the most incredible act of humility, symbolic of what's coming in Gethsemane, but at the same time it is also a ordinance. sacred ordinance that must be done for those who would be apostles. Are you asking me to speculate where Mary fit in this all of this? Yes, not marriage. No, no, no. Discipleship. Yes. I, I, I think everything that we have suggests that Mary was more was more involved in discipleship than we have any idea on that. Just to, I yes, and, and you're going where my brain went. Yeah. You think that ordinance is 
includes a code that the person receiving it is accepting a commitment to serve. Yes, he, 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 what he's saying is, is this ordinance comes with a covenant and a promise to serve and to give your life, to give your whole soul, to give your service, to completely open your your alabaster box and and commit yourself to this to the kingdom. Yeah. Which is interesting because the next thing that Peter says after the Savior says, uh, if you want to be part of me, you yeah. have to let me wash. Your then I'm in. I'm in whole heart. Yeah, wash my hand, wash yeah, my hands. I, I am there. Which is interesting because that's what the Lord wants of us is to give our all. Yeah. All yeah. You got to love Peter. That's so great that Peter if that's what this yeah, is, I'm diving into the basin, man. We just do the whole thing. Yeah. I, I think they walk in these sandals without socks. Yeah. The feet are probably the dirtiest part of their body. Yes. And for them to wash them, it's kind of like almost like baptism. It is, because this is the cleansiest, dirtiest, smelliest, and we're going to go to that part of your body, which is the dirtiest, smelliest stuff, and that's what we're going to wash. Okay? And then to be cleansed of the dust of this earth is is what's going on. And Joseph is saying... You'll be received by the ordinance of washing of feet. For unto this end was the ordinance of washing of feet instituted. And again, the ordinance of washing feet is to be administered by the president or presiding elder of the church. Does this still happen today? Yes, it does. That's one of the reasons, though, why it is that uh, the the church, um, uh, a while back, there there are sometimes... uh, Self-help, self-esteem groups that will meet over a period of about four days and it's kind of this intense change your life kind of thing and they go by a variety of different names and they're usually about $500 and then there's a second level and, and that's another $500. And, 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 but, but, uh, and there's, a, there's some inherent problems with groups like that. There's some things, good things that have come out of them. But there are a lot of inherent problems, and I won't go into them. But part of when the church uh, sent out a statement regarding these groups to avoid these groups, it was based on the fact that at the end of these groups, they would oftentimes end it with the washing of feet. And and for so many groups, especially in in LDS circles, the fact that, that they were... It was like they were, without really knowing what they were doing, this is so sacred in nature that it didn't belong in this setting. Yeah, they can be. Okay. All right, so that, that's it. So the Savior is now going to, he's going to do all of this. Oh, we got about five minutes. Um, uh, 45 verses to cover. Yeah, I know. Again, but it is one of those nice things about the way we do this, because if we don't get to something, we can kind of pick it up the next week. There's nothing in the uh, Gospel Doctrine Manual that says we have to be on the next lesson by next week. Okay, so... He's going to do all this, including including Judas. Uh, and then we're going to get a lot of information about this. And then 21, 
When Jesus had thus said, he was troubled in spirit, and he says, Verily, one of you are going to betray me. The disciples look at each other, doubting whom he spoke. And, and in one of the other Gospels, they will say, Is it I? Is it me? There was one leaning on Jesus' bosom, one of his disciples. I always love this. That's John. John always refers to himself in the third person. There was a disciple that Jesus loved. Oh, me. <laughs> uh, that's always great. Um, there was one that ran faster than Peter to the tomb, younger and quicker. Me. There was one leaning on Jesus' bosom, one of his disciples, whom Jesus loved. And Simon Peter's kind of next to him and says, Ask him, who is it? Okay? Now, he then lied and he says, Okay, Lord, who is it? And Jesus says, uh, it, He it is who I shall give a sop. When he, when he dipped it, when he dipped the sop, he gave it to Judas Iscariot. Now, the sop, in all likelihood, uh, pieces of broken cake with bitter herb between them are dipped in the cheroseth. It is a that is a mix. This salt, in all likelihood, is a mixture of dates and raisins and vinegar, and it represents the mortar. But it's also mixed with, mixed with salt water and the bitter herbs to say the tears that went into to making the mortar for the bricks. Okay. So what you're going to do is you're going to take the matzah, the unleavened bread, and you're going to dip it in. The, the cheroset, uh, or uh, what's the other way we pronounce that? It's what? Carl set. Thank you. But it's also got another name. Is it like coconut? I'm blocking on it. It's, it's fruit and honey and some, some spices. Yeah. There's just this mixture. And, and we're thinking that what happened is the Savior then dips it in the unleavened bread and he hands it to. Judas Iscariot. Judas Iscariot's going to take that to eat it. It's like you, you got the chip and you're going to dip it in the dip and hand it to somebody else. Okay? Now, which is fascinating because uh, he says, whoever I give it to, then he hands it to Judas and after the sop, Satan entered into him. I just think he, started, he was ready to act and Jesus said, what thou doest, doest quickly. So he's going to hand him this mix of bitter herbs and all that and he's going to hand it to him and say, what you do, do quickly. Go. Now, uh, in a sense, he's like, okay, I know what you want to do. Go do it. In some ways, it feels almost like he's kind of being dismissed. You can go now. And I think that was going to be critical for what happens next. And we're going to finish talking about it next week. Because everything that now comes after that is after Judas has now left. Think about what is required to have a unity of spirit and to have somebody in that mix that, doesn't, that isn't on the same page, who's looking at an act of loving service and doing it with a cold eye. Kind of affects our prayers in sacred services, in sacred places, doesn't it? You want to make sure everybody's on the same page, and if you're not on the same page, you might not want to be here. Because Zion is one heart. We have to be knitted together. One of the reasons why it is it's necessary that as part of repentance we excommunicate people not because we hate them and want them gone but we want them to be cleansed so they can be one heart with us. Okay.
All right. Um, so, so did Peter and John know at that time? Then that it was. Judas? Yeah, at that point but, they would have no known that it knew. was. But nobody else really would have. He's not making a big deal. You are the betrayer. Go away and betray me, and we'll go on without you. But I, I think it's, it's sad that at that point, then Judas, after all these years, then gets up and he leaves his brethren to go and betray the Savior, and he will walk out of that sacred experience. A lot is about to happen. He will miss. And and he will forever cut himself out from that. Ultimately, he will be dead, what, within the next couple of days after he's betrayed, and he will hang himself. Now, two last things then, and then we need to be done. Okay. So the Savior's going to go through all of this, and then he's going to say... A new commandment I give unto you that ye love one another as I have loved you. You love one another. Why new? Why is this a new commandment? Seems like he gave it at Sinai. No, nothing big here. Why is this a new commandment? He raised the bar. What, how is he raising the bar? It's on Oh. And how, okay, so here we go. So here's a level that says, I need you to love one another as... I have loved you. How did he just love them? He, he served them. He washed their feet. Including who? Judas. The people that would betray and hurt him the most. This raising the bar says, and love those two. Wash their feet also. Oh, that's, oh, that's pretty heavy. Also love them to the end. And love them to the end. Yeah. And go... Go into Gethsemane and, and suffer and bleed for them. Those that have hurt us the most. Which is the hardest thing to do. If we're carrying grudges or pain from people that have hurt ourselves, hurt our families, hurt people that we love, that have attacked the church, attacked, you know, whatever it is. Today we should be loving those that are Texas fans. <laughs> who, who are who are really hurting? <laughs> so, 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 uh, yeah, or cowboy fan? Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Um, I know. I just messed that whole yeah. thing up, didn't I? <laughs> okay. Let, let, let me let me finish with this. Uh, and then we need to keep going. I want to finish with this quote. My only one to finish. The Savior's ministry was one of compassion and service. It is beyond my ability to comprehend how any of us today could conceive of the tidal wave of emotions that would come to anyone whose feet would be washed by the very Son of God. No wonder Peter, in complete reverence, asked, Lord, dost thou wash my feet? Something seemed to violate every foundation principle we have used to guide our lives. Think about those times when you feel like you're unworthy and, and you're conscious of your weaknesses and still the Savior wants to wash your feet. That is, that's just amazing. To him who was the center of all Peter held precious and washed and dear, wash his feet was beyond consideration. Peter would have done the same thing for the Savior, undoubtedly would have crawled on cut glass for him. But to have the Master serve him in this way was too much. Peter says, Thou shalt never wash my feet. Each of us would probably have felt as Peter... Uh, as he did. Many things could have been said to Peter to get him to change his mind. The Savior, in a sentence, stuck at the great nerve center of Peter's loyalty, love, and very life. If I wash thee not, thou hast no part of me. Peter's firm stance then collapsed to total submission. Lord, 
not my feet only, but my hands and my head. Uh, the master was teaching leadership. Well, to me, that th these are events that are just kind of beyond our comprehension. Uh, Mary's sacrifice, the Savior's condescension, and his love of someone like Judas Iscariot who had betrayed him. And ultimately, yeah, Peter will go, or uh, Judas will then go hang himself when he recognizes the enormity of what he did. It's my prayer that during this week we will think about what's in our box and however large or piddling we might think is in our alabaster box, that if we can remove those bags of grudges and bags of pain and bags of envy and whatever it is that we carry, we might see much more clearly what's in our box to present to the Savior. No matter how small or how large, the Savior is still willing to descend all and wash our feet. I pray that we can do that, and I leave that with you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Yes, ma'am.